Hi, I'm Jay Thomas, and welcome to Bald Tires, a proud member of the Saskatchewan Podcast Network. My guest today is somebody who I think has played a pretty crucial role in me, myself, becoming a car guy throughout the years. You know, I think like our country that we live in that's so diverse, the car community is also very diverse, and there are people that are interested in all aspects of vehicles. Today, we're talking to my uncle Colin, who's from Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, and he also owns Action Cycle, one of the last true blue motorcycle repair shops around. But my uncle has always been interested in the cool European stuff, the small stuff, the stuff that's light and nimble. We're going to go over some of the amazing European sports cars my uncle has owned over the years throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s, even ones that he owns to this day. So sit back and relax and enjoy this episode called On the Lighter Side. Thanks for listening to Bald Tires, because when you make great memories, you make bald tires. The Saskatchewan Podcast Network is supported by Connexus. Connexus Credit Union is all about their members. Improving their financial well-being drives everything they do. And that's not just something they say. It's a promise that's delivered by over 900 employees across Saskatchewan. Their employees are members too, and they've been there. So they're committed to making your money work for you. The banking industry needs to change, and Connexus is changing it for everyone. Because Connexus cares. Visit Connexus.ca to learn more. The Saskatchewan Podcast Network is also supported by Direct West. Is marketing getting in the way of running your business? Direct West has a local expert team right here in Saskatchewan that will work with you to build your website exactly how you imagine it. Let them help you improve your online presence and head to directwest.com to learn more. Well, I made a road trip down to Moose Jaw and I'm sitting in my uncle's shop right now and I've got my, my uncle Colin Cassette with me. Uncle, thanks for joining the show. Hey, it's fun. <laughs> thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Okay. You know what? We I've had lots of people on who have talked about American stuff, uh, North American built cars. That's been a little, you know kind of what I I drive in a way with my old '69 Buick. And but uh, you've always been the cool uncle who's been interested in the in the European stuff and the import stuff, and and that goes back a long way. So I thought we may take a chance to talk a bit about some of the cars you've owned in in the past. Now. Your, your dad, my grandpa, was stationed in Germany with the RCAF from, what, 1963 or so to 1965, something like that? 66? Yeah, it was 63 to 66, I think. Yeah. yeah. So you were, what, like 10 years old when you went over there? Yeah. Something like that's that? That's right. To 13. So you probably remember a lot of the vehicles you saw over there. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because I was a bit of a car guy there, too. And... uh yeah, I remember seeing, um, so that's right when uh, an American personnel, because this was on a big military base. Yeah. The base population was like 180,000 people. It was a NATO base, Ramstein. And I can remember where an American bought a brand new Camaro. They had just come out and had it shipped over there. And he had it, uh, we were up in a, I was down looking uh, from a balcony in an apartment-style block, and there it was. It was uh, sort of a copperish, goldish kind of Camaro. It was the first year out, and uh, he was there uh, cleaning it up a bit, polishing it, and that kind of thing. Another thing I remember was actually a Citroen, so uh, a military guy from France, bought a brand new Citroen and 
he had it for a few months, and then I'm looking down the balcony, and he had literally stripped the fenders <laughs> off of it right in the parking lot and was cleaning behind the fenders. Like, he unbolted all the fenders. <laughs> Can't do that these days. Yeah. No. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I was always uh, I was always interested in cars back then. Did you get to see some really fantastic European stuff there? Like, oh, yeah. Y- you know, stuff that we wouldn't have had in Canada at that point in history, right? I mean, yep. I know Mercedes, Mercedes, for example, was in Canada, but those are very, very expensive vehicles here, where that was more common, things like that, and BMWs, early yeah. stuff, right? That's right, yeah. Well, I already told you about, but I'll bring up the story where my... One of the first cars my dad purchased there was a big, huge Plymouth station wagon. And while gas prices is really high there, uh, even now, versus here, we think the gas price is high here, but that's it's way higher over in Europe. That's right. And so that's part of the reason they drive smaller uh, vehicles there generally, because the fuel economy is way more important. So, uh, but dad bought this big Plymouth and it sucked gas, but... More noticeably, we couldn't get it through some of the German towns because it was so big and the roads are so narrow <laughs> that we just couldn't get through. So we had to go around these towns. So finally, then uh, the transmission went when we were going down an, uh, an Autobahn. And so enough of that. And um, uh, we went, my dad purchased a brand new Volkswagen Squareback station wagon right from the factory and so we drove to the factory and picked it up there and I remember that going to the factory so it was a Volkswagen was it factory like Wolfsburg like that that famous yeah factory? I couldn't tell you what but I couldn't tell you now where it was yeah. exactly but I don't think it was all that far from the big base there the big NATO base because uh, I don't think we drove a long time but anyways uh, when we would go down the Autobahn as a family, and then I'd sit in the very back. And, of course, that's where the engine was under, <laughs> Yeah. you know, the engine was below the floor. And uh, I did put my ear to the floor, and I could hear the the motor just uh, thrumming. And, of course, you're going at a much higher rate of speed there on the Autobahn versus here. So even in the slow lane, you know, he had that thing almost matted out <laughs> so we're probably i don't know what we're doing i don't know how 75 or 80 well miles an uh, hour yeah so we're probably doing uh around uh yeah um because uh, it was in kilometers back then well, too yeah right oh, yeah well that's so yeah. do you think you think a, uh, a square back would do 130 140 maybe flat out it's probably all it could yeah do. yeah it would would have would have yeah. uh, about that though right yeah yeah that's right yeah now that that station wagon, then I know you know I remember seeing pictures that that uh, Grandpa picked up a little like camper that even went behind that, right? Yeah, he pulled a camper behind that. Can you imagine like a a, a little flat four in a Volkswagen with five people in it, like two adults and three kids, and a trunk full of stuff, and a little tent trailer going over the Alps? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Nobody would dare tow with something like that anymore. But that was common back then in yeah, Europe, right? Yeah, very common over there. Well, again, it's way more smaller vehicles. So, like, you would see quite a few of those uh, uh, small um, uh, Messerschmitt cars, you know, the mm-hmm. ones with the, the whole front 
I, I is said a, a right? bubble and flips up. Yeah. yeah. So you would see those running around. Uh, and But you'd see mo- mostly small cars. You couldn't take big cars. So a big car over there, the German people, so if you had a uh, Mercedes-Benz four-door sedan, that was pretty big there. And then it, anybody who owned bigger cars was considered a, a wealthy. You must be wealthy to be able to drive that. So later on, Dad bought a 62 Ford Fairlane with a 260 V8 in it, which over here would be considered, um, I think it was a, um, a, uh, not a compact car, but a mid-size car. Right. But over there, the Germans all thought, it was the size of a Mercedes, so the Germans all thought, we must be really wealthy to be driving (laughs) something like that. But at least that one, we could could make it down most of the streets in the towns, small German towns, but not all of them because yeah. it was still just a little too big. But over here, that was they'd say, oh, what a cute car that Ford Fairlane was. But over there, that was a big, huge car So, so by comparison. You're about 13 when you came yeah. back to Canada. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the next assignment for for Grandpa in the, in the RCAF was Yorkton, right? Yes. So... Were you 16 when when you when you were living in Yorkton and and got your driver's license? Yeah, well, I was uh, still um, 15 when we actually bought my first car, which was a 1962 Austin A60 station wagon, and um, so I didn't have my license yet. Yeah, but my dad bought this off another uh, airman who was working on the base there, and. Um, it was, he had painted it orange. <laughs> and of course, the rocker panels, they were rusting a bit, so we painted them black. And um, then, then uh, I went and got a, one of these uh, four, six, eight cylinder tachometers. Yeah. And it was a big chrome thing, and I mounted it right in the dash, so much so that. I had to look to the side of it to be able to see, and it really didn't work right. It kept going fluttering between them, so, it, but it just looked cool. That was the main thing. So, what like that car had a little tiny four-cylinder engine in it? Yeah, it had a four-cylinder. wasn't uh, super tiny for the day. I think uh, it was something like actually uh, fifteen or sixteen hundred cc uh, engine in it, but they didn't have a lot of power. Not like more modern cars do but uh yeah it uh uh so and uh, it was geared uh short so it revved pretty high on the highway mm-hmm. so when you're doing 65 mile an hour that thing was really revving well i don't think it was meant to even go that like no. based on coming from europe right, right i right. mean th- i don't think you know the the freeways in in England, where it came from, really were that fast of speeds anyways, right? Yeah, well, that's the problem with a lot of the British cars back then is then they came over here, they really weren't set up for our environment, our higher road speeds and wide open spaces. Yeah. So in England, the roads are shorter and more twistier and narrower and stuff like that. And in the rest of Europe, too. But but anyways it was pretty cool the and it was pretty cool in that yeah the heater sucked and it was cool in the winter time (laughs) 
<laughs> and uh, not much for defrost, and that was another issue with a lot of the British cars. They didn't have very good heaters, you know. How about, how about electrical? Like, that's always known to be a problem with... Yeah, that, that would crop up, although I didn't have that many electrical problems, really, with my British cars that I owned. So that Austin yeah. that you had that was your first car, yeah. how long did you have it for? Oh, I, I had it for quite some time, I guess, but I don't recall exactly how long. Um, but uh, eventually we sold it to a restaurant owner next to my uncle's Andy's Transport on Circle Drive in Saskatoon. Oh, really? Yeah, he bought it. But anyways, my just before, but before that, my rocker panels were rusting so badly, and I was trying to figure out what to do. And my uncle went and got some sheet metal bent. And we just riveted it on place. And I was so happy because I had brand new rocker panels. <laughs> Boy, that feels like a story that I have uh, I had, huh? Yes, it does. And that, yeah, you, it? you played a part in that too because my first car was in my 81 Honda Civic, which which belonged to Grandpa, the, mm-hmm. the your dad. And yeah, I remember what, I think it was my 15th birthday. I couldn't even drive yet. And you, you for my birthday, got me... Got me rocker reproduction rocker panels and quarter panels and the rear fender edge for that Civic and uh, yeah that was about the same job I did it was it was riveting them on and and Bondo and yeah rattle yeah. cans and I had a brand new car it looked great yeah <laughs> don't well, look underneath but it looked great <laughs> yeah and I helped Dad get that brand new Civic there in '81 uh, so we bought that through uh, where I was working in Saskatoon. I was a manager for uh, um, some Honda motorcycles and uh, at a place, and then we also dealt with Thomas Motors in Ipawan, who sold them. So we made a deal, and that's how Dad got that brand new yep. eighty-one Civic thirteen hundred with a five-speed. Five, five-speed, yeah. yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, and then you ended up with that eventually. That's right, and even my little sister Amy, and you know what. Uh, I still have the original key and the original key tag from Thomas Motors in Nippon. Oh, like okay. it was one was saved somehow, and yeah. and I've still got I've still got it. But uh, yeah. So okay, you had the Austin as your first car. Yeah. But you you had a whole series of really cool British cars and yeah. and and some European stuff, not just yeah. British, but some European stuff after that. So what was what was the next car that came along for you? Well, I. Th- I think I bought a, uh, after that, a uh, 1970 Cortina GT four-door, the gold with stripes four-door. So, so the, the Cortina GT, what was cool to me was, and because I, I was more attracted to European stuff, so some of the European stuff, they had actual wood dashes. Yeah. And that's what that... Ford Cortina had was a really was a high polished wood dash in there and that's what I really liked now for anybody who's listening who doesn't know that that car that was like the predecessor in Europe to the Escort right yeah well they were sold together the Cortina was a huge 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 the one of the biggest sellers there for Ford in Europe and uh um, it was imported over here, but over there, that was their main volume seller over there. Their number one volume seller, actually. So the 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 Escort was sold alongside the, Cor- the Cor- Cortina, but it, the Escort was a little smaller. Oh, okay. So over there, the Cortina was considered a, a uh, 
that'd be the equivalent of a full-size family sedan here in the 70s. Uh, the uh, GT model was extra special in that it was a little more performance-orientated uh, um, sedan. So if you still don't know what, a, what those Cortinas look like, if anybody knows what a Datsun 510 was mm-hmm. that was from the area, they were a similar boxy sort of look to them. Uh, but anyways, the GT had uh, special performance shocks and springs and anti-sway bar, and they had a, the engine they had uh, hopped up again like Ford. They had actual header, tubular header hmm. st- standard. They had a two-barrel Weber, a little more aggressive cam, and uh, they had a little higher compression pistons in it. So it was a fairly zippy, peppy thing. And it had down the side, they had two black stripes going all the way down the side. So over in England now, uh, people that restore them, collect them, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And, And the GT particularly is sought after. Uh, so they had regular Cortinas, and then they had the GT model, and they had a couple other variations. They had an E model. And then they also had, had a, Lo- a Lotus Cortina. So that was a Cortina where was modified by Lotus. So they, the... Uh, that was the, a, a partnership between Lotus and Ford, yes. though, right? So Lotus took the... Um, so the standard 1600s push motor mm-hmm. then they used that engine block well they used the older version which was a 1500 uh and then when they went to the 1600 that was a cross flow head meaning on one side there's the intake and the, the carburetor on the other side's the exhaust mm-hmm. whereas in the older style they'd be both on the same side okay yep. so the cross flow was a little more efficient made a little more power but they, the 1500 block they used to, and then the Lotus developed a, a double overhead cam or a twin cam aluminum head for it. Mm-hmm. So it had quite a bit more performance, and it was, but it was based on the older uh, 1500 block, which actually they, Lotus punched out to 1558. So, uh, um, yeah, I had the Cortina GT, and then later on I got uh i i got i sold that and i got a the lotus cortina and so the lotus cortina is is um, a very super collectible car over there that's like the equivalent of a, a dodge hemi cuda mm-hmm. uh, with a 426 in it and right a, and a four speed that's what a lotus cortina is so over there it was the everyday man's performance vehicle. Right. You could still haul the family, yet it had quite a bit of performance. Now, over in Europe, performance has a different meaning than North America. So performance over there is more encompassing everything, handling, braking, you know, how it turns and, and feels and all that kind yep. of stuff. Whereas in that era, performance over here in North America meant more what it does in the straight line, quarter mile, and that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, brakes so, didn't always weren't always great. So those Lotus Cortinas, um, it was uh, just a few years ago when I was visiting you and your your mom and dad in Saskatoon, and we went to uh, a bookshop there, and you know I went uh, scouring the magazines, and on a rack was a British Car magazine, it was sort of a, like a retro Ford type thing, and in there. 
finally I seen there were they featured Lotus Cortinas. Now most of the time the Lotus Cortinas were the Mark One. They were the older body style with little fins on the back and everything. Mm-hmm. There, uh, but when they they later revised them into the more boxier kind of look, and that was the Mark Two. And that's what I had. Okay. So I had a Mark II, but I never seen much on the Mark II. But finally, there was an article so from Britain, and in there, and they said, well, the values. So a a little bit rougher, tattier Lotus Cortina, in the equivalent to Canadian dollars, they had it listed in British pounds. But I think it was something like uh, um, in tatty or rough condition, something like uh, equivalent of twenty thousand dollars. <laughs> And then one in in average shape was like, say, forty to sixty thousand mm-hmm. dollars, and one in premium shape was you know over a hundred thousand wow. dollars. So when I seen that, I went, "Oh my god!" But over here, it's not thought of that way because they just kind of all went away, and you know wasn't thought about that way. But over there, yeah, that's like has real serious meaning, and it is exactly like. You mentioned 426 Hemi Cuda. People know generally what that means. Yeah. Or a, but over there, or a, a Lotus Cortina, that's what it means over there. Or a Shelby Mustang, right. you know, for yep. example, right? Yep. GT350. Everybody knows what that kind of means yep. over here. So they actually had have more value than the actual Lotus models did generally just because it was more usable, practical performance car that a person could put you know, not just a two-seater, but uh, but their family in it. So the first one you had was a four-door? Yeah. The second one, the Lotus Cortina, that was the first one was a GT. The second one was a two-door? Yeah, the Lotus Cortinas were only in two-door. Yeah. They were two-door sedans, though, right? Right. Okay. Right. right. And they were raced on the racetrack. So well-known racer Jim Clark, he raced them. And actually, there's pictures of them on the track at the same time with all things, the Ford Galaxy 500, <laughs> which is a big, huge car, the big honk. Yep. So you see the Americans or North Americans didn't quite understand power to weight there. And they figured they'd stomp all these uh, little puny little European cars on the track because they had all this much more power. But these things weighed twice as much. And and here, sure, they had more power, but they they wouldn't handle all that well around mm-hmm. the corner. So they mm-hmm. actually raced against them. But the, the Cortinas would race against the Alfa Romeos uh, and the BMWs, those kind of cars there. But the, the Lotus Cortina especially, you know, they won all kinds of things back uh, in Europe, all kinds of things. So it had a heck of a reputation. Okay, a couple of Cortinas, Lotus yep. Cortina. What else after that? Uh, Fiat X19. The first year they they were out. I didn't buy it new. I bought it used, and it was lime green. So 1974 Fiat X19, and that's a. If you don't know what that is, it's almost like a mini Ferrari. It's a mid-engine car, 1300 cc pop-up headlights. Pop-up he- headlights, mid-engine, and uh, disc brakes all the way around. Pretty exotic car, actually. Uh, but uh, and you think well. 1300 but again the car was pretty light mm-hmm. very light so what are we talking weights here well i think my uh, lotus cortina i i'm thinking would have weighed around 1800 pounds <laughs> okay yeah and the fiat was somewhere around there anyways yeah uh so uh, uh power to weight 
again, you don't need a lot of power if you're lightweight. No. And, uh, yeah, so I had the Fiat, and we even drove down to California with it, my cousin and myself. And the Fiat has a removable hardtop that comes off. Uh-huh. And it's got a real, it's got an exotic sound to it, too. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And I thought that, after having some other British cars, uh, well, and later some British cars, so I thought that was, uh, and I, I skipped, sorry, I did skip over quite a few cars there now that I'm thinking about it. So actually, after that, yeah, before the Fiat, I had an MGB. Oh, okay. Yeah. What year? 67 MGB, light blue one. And like you, like you were growing, you were living in Saskatoon at yeah, this time. That's right. Did you drive these cars all year? Yeah. Like yep. because that's a in little the, in the winter time. Yeah, uh, like yeah. that's a little car, right? An MGB is a pretty yeah. little light yeah, car. Yeah, convertible. Yeah, and a convertible too. Yeah. And it, yeah. But I had got a hard around. top for it, um, and I had a tonneau cover. But yeah, they were. Yeah, but that, in those days, a a sports car was only a sports car if it was a convertible <laughs> so you know really if you had a hard top really for the most part i'm generalizing here but uh yeah the, that that's how i looked at it anyways and my friends at the time so sports car well, immediately you pictured some kind of convertible mm-hmm. and that was a sports car convertible smaller european car not a convertible american car so mgb then comes the fiat x19 right yeah. Yep. Uh, yes. And and uh, that car lasted how long? Oh, I had that for quite a while. Sold it to our cousin Brian. He actually wanted to buy it. Oh, really? I, I did. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think eventually he blew up the engine. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, now, okay. So you you also. You said you told me a story uh, a little while ago. You you did finally break down and buy an American car once too. Yeah, right. Well, that was in the era when I had still had the Lotus Cortina, and I was always envious of people who could readily go down to Canadian Tire, go anywhere easily, and pick up parts for their American cars. Yeah, and the parts were cheap. Well, in those days, no internet or nothing, and. Uh, uh, it was really difficult to find parts often. The Ford dealers still carried some stuff. Like I could buy some stuff still from the Ford For a Cortina, dealer. yeah. For, for a Cortina. But other stuff and the other British cars, yeah, it was much more difficult getting parts than that. And, uh, and so I went and bought a 1970 Mustang with a 351 Cleveland. But it was an automatic, <laughs> okay. which kind of sucked. Automatics back then that they you know were three speed automatics and you, whether you have a standard you had more gears and they were quite a bit faster, and so that was the performance cars always had a yeah. manual you didn't have automatics back then that was for your for your girlfriend <laughs> or the little old ladies and uh, uh, but but uh, so I had that it was not a fastback though it was a notchback. And I drove that around for a while, um, and yeah, it was pretty good in a straight line. But after I jumped back into the Lotus Cortina, well, that was like a go-kart by comparison. Yep. So the Mustang, really, it was flaccid handling. It 
you know, the handling and everything were not in the same realm. No, no. Now, you can do stuff with them now, of course. I, mm-hmm. I understand that. And the more modern, newer Mustangs or Camaros, yeah, they, they, they handle really good, too. You know? Yeah, it's, it's a different story now. Yes. Totally, totally. Yeah. Cause but back then, that's... People bought the performance American cars for the straight line speed, not for handling. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, well, anyways, that was just too boring to drive, actually. So I, I sold it. But actually, but also on top of that, there was a fair bit of rust going on there. But, uh, yeah, it was just not my thing after I drove it for a while. Now, you eventually started working at the Saskatoon dealership, Merlin Ford. Yep. Merlin Ford Lincoln back then, right? Merlin Motors. Merlin Motors. Now, you were, you know, there was some pretty cool stuff that Ford was doing, bringing over, even in 1983, right? That you, you got to kind of check well, out and look after. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, they had a meeting, uh, got the salesmen, all the salesmen from both Jubilee and Merlin together, and Ford came over with a pre-production uh, prototype Mustang SVO. So the Mustang SVO is uh, like everybody knows the Mustangs with the V8s. The it's a Fox body. And uh, yes, um, and uh, that was their attempt at uh, producing a, a more neutral handling car, and that had a turbocharged four-cylinder engine in, which most of the Mustang crowd kind of went, huh? <laughs> But it, it in magazines like Car and Driver, Road and Track, they were lauded for their great handling and everything versus the other Mustangs with the V8. So the Mustangs with the V8, they are very heavy in the front end, and they tend to, you know, they tend to plow when you're trying to steer. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so anyways, but the thing is, when you go to, you're really going at a speed and you're trying to turn hard and they, they want to tend to go forward, you know, they want to keep going. Yeah. And because they got so much weight on the front end, they start to plow. Well, the SVO, so they had a, uh, the Ford was introducing it. And we went into the hotel building and uh, in a big room, meeting room, they had a film running. And they were talking about how well they had reduced the turbo lag, turbocharged lag. Mm-hmm. And so most of your listeners should know what that means. Well, I mean, that was a big problem back when yes. turbos came out. Yes. So right? turbos lag is when you put your foot into it, it takes a little while for the turbo to spool up and actually produce boost and then you go. So, so there's a little bit of a lag before the power yeah. kicks in. You, you push the pedal down and there's a lag and then the power uh, kicks in. So it's not great for handling or for predicting what it's going to do. What it's going to do. Right? right. But they were making a big thing out of, uh, and the engineers were there, how they reduced the lag of this turbo and that whatnot. So they gave us all the goods on this SVO and uh, had the bi-wing on there, really looked cool. Had more of a European-style sport handling suspension. So that's what attracted me. Mm-hmm. So anyways, they had a prescribed course laid out in Saskatoon for all the salesmen to drive it. So I waited to the very last, and um, <laughs> I went to get in it, and this other salesman jumps in with me, this guy, and I said, what are you doing? Well, I'm going to come along with you. But anyways, I said, I don't think you really want to do that. And, oh, yeah, no, I'll come along. So he comes along. Well, I didn't f- follow the prescribed route. That wasn't too long after they had built the Circle Drive 
um, S, you know, coming from Circle Drive there, and to get on the main one, there's, uh, you know, real nice S curves going yep. down. Yep. And so uh, I wound that SVO up uh, going around that those curves, and boy, I was really impressed because it did handle neutral, didn't plow and everything, went around there almost like a European car. And so when I stopped uh, to switch to this guy, Bob, he said, don't ever do that again. He <laughs> was just, I guess I just terrified him. So it was kind of like that scene out of uh, Ford versus Ferrari where, yep. where, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was kind of like that. Ford yes. goes along in the ride in the Ford GT and yes. crying by the end. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. No, it actually, uh, that was the, one of the first, I think, American style performance car that that handled pretty darn good. Yeah, and that's because there, you know, the handling was balanced. The weight was better balanced, and they put a lot of effort into the suspension too, to get it to really handle well. And uh, I remember too, it had a switch that you can switch from regular fuel to premium. Oh, uh, electronic switch. And yeah. by doing that, so if you had to run regular, it'd back off the timing or something, uh, you know, and you you would reduce the power. Because it was fuel injected, obviously, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, so that was the uh, SVO. Story. So so did you have a did you have a, a role to play in a lot of those getting sold in Saskatoon? Well, of course, the SVO was. Ford, where I worked at Merlin Motors, which was right. Mercury. Mercury now, Lincoln, what yeah. happened was then Mercury imported, again, the, the sedan that replaced the Cortina series in Europe was called the Sierra. Mm-hmm. And that was a high volume. That was the high volume over there, a little bit bigger family type sedan. Right. So when they brought it over here, they couldn't use the Sierra name because, uh, because what GM called their one car. Right. Which even though the spelling was different. Well, and, so they yeah. had to come up with something else. So then the, somebody had a not so bright or not so bright theory that, well, let's call it what the German word for mercury. So it was Markur, Markur, and it was an XR4TI. Two-door, they only brought over the performance version. But instead of the V6, they had the turbocharged 2.3 liter four-cylinder. Same, similar engine that was in the SVO uh, Mustang. But in the Marcourt, actually, uh, uh, so when the SVO first came out, I think a little later on, they might have increased the power. But but the Marcourt came out and had a, had a little more power than the SVO. Mm, okay. And then later on, they, they, it was something like 185 horsepower or something. And then later on, the later versions, they got it over 200. I think it was 200 or 210 or, or, two, or 215, I think, what it was. And so that was pretty ahead of its time in a lot of ways. When you look at that, that's a common thing now, have a turbo mm-hmm. four. Mm-hmm. But uh, the point it was that, uh, yeah, so the, but the Marcour was a European sedan. The you know they competed against BMW. That had an e- independent rear suspension too, and everything. So it was a definite European car. But that name was kind of goofy to North Americans. Mm-hmm. Know, what the hell? And how do you spell it? And how do you say it? Um, so, anyways, uh, they started selling it, and um, 
And then uh, my manager, Ron Adams, we got together and uh, I said, you know, um, we should do an ad, some kind of TV commercial for this thing and do it right. So actually he let me develop the whole thing and we took a car down to uh, the TV station downtown and they filmed it. I gave them a script and the people at the TV station thought the wording was too long, but I, it was on purpose the way I set it all up. So. Yeah, we set it all up. We had uh, one of the guys put in some skis in the back because, you know, that was what they did over in Europe, the hatchback, and then you could fold down to one seat and put skis in there. So we did all that, had the TV commercials, and it ended up later being a big success. Hmm. A lot of people didn't know this existed, and so it, it caused them to have pretty good sales. But that, that happened then after I had left there. Mm, okay, actually. yeah. But I, because I went back there to, to visit, and a couple of soldiers said, "Oh man, I'm really selling those Marcors." <laughs> okay, so so you worked in, like I said, with Merlin Ford, eighty three, eighty two, eighty five, eighty six, something like that, right? And you know, there's a car out in the garage that I remember as a kid that I want to talk about. It is what year is that? It's a seventy four uh, Mercury Capri. Now those were. The German Capris. Right. So it's so, not not the Capri version of the, the, of the Mustang, the later. Fox body thing, yes. right? Yeah. Yeah. So what happened is, again, Ford, uh, and they let the Mercury side um, handle the European cars more so. Right. So the Cortinas, and they had other ones um, too, but the uh, uh, the XR4TI, um, and, but the, the Capri... They started importing that in, I think, 69. And it was basically what they did is look at the sales success of the Mustang over in North America. But the Mustang, again, was just too big of a car for over there for mm -hmm. the roads. Mm -hmm. So they made a kind of a more smaller version of the Mustang. And they called it the Capri. And it came out with various engines over the year. But it came out in... 68 or 9 and uh, first had a 1600 four-cylinder engine the same that was in the cortina actually okay yeah at first later on a two liter um, overhead cam engine and then they came out with the um, a german small german uh, v6 and originally it was a 2.6 liter and then later on they punched it out to 2.8 made some changes primarily in the heads they had siamese the exhaust ports in the 2.6 and in the 2.8 they had separate exhaust ports which gave it more performance advantages and and they upgraded the engine is that known as the cologne v6 yes okay so 2.8 that's so that's what's in the one you have right 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 yeah so that one uh they also had an in England, they had their own separate V6, which they sold. They never sold that over here. So oh, okay. the V6 engine over there was different. It was actually a little bit bigger. I think it was uh, um, 3.1 liter. And it was a di totally different one. But the one we got was the German V6. Now, you're, so you, yours is a 73. 74. Four. That's, so, that's considered Mark I, though, right? Yeah, it was the last year for the Mark I. So uh, the 73 had the 2.6 as an option. You can get the 2-liter inline four-cylinder yep. over here. And um, 
but when in, in 74 is a unique year because they had then they had the Mark IIs in 75 and they went to a hatchback totally revised interior. Yeah. So the 74 was the last of the Mark I body style, which was a, a solid uh, back, no hatch, it's with a, tr- a trunk. small trunk. Yeah. And but they had the upgraded Mark II interior and drive and drivetrain and the drivetrain. Right. right. So that was highly desirable to me back then. Now one of the things to do with that was when I had uh, the Lotus Cortina. And of course, that really wasn't a drag race machine. It was a you know performance European performance sedan with handling and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, I was at, sitting at the top set of lights in Idlewild, heading north, and what happened was a Capri German Capri pulled up beside me, and uh, lights are going off. We went, and man, that that Capri could pull away from me, especially <laughs> in the upper end. It was a more aerodynamic body style too. Yeah. Yeah, they were pretty strong. I remember seeing a guy ice race one uh, in Saskatoon. He had the earlier one with the 2.6 in. So anyways, this this uh, Capri I, I bought, and it, it was uh, kind of represented it in some ways the, the best of both worlds because it was a European sedan, that or a two-door coupe that handled pretty good. They were known for that, but yet they, they had pretty good power and uh but they were pretty simple machine easy to work on yep and you could get quite a bit of performance parts for it not going down to a local speed shop but they were so um so when did you buy it oh 80 something well i bought it uh here i bought it out of regina okay all right yeah Yeah. anyway and it was orange Actually, that was the original color. It was orange. Yeah, yeah. Actually, it's kind of be kind of cool now. So you, you you came to Moose Jaw. You think you told me in in eighty seven, right, or eighty six? Eighty. Yeah, we. Yeah, eighty six. Eighty six. Yeah. So so that means slightly just just after that is when you when yeah, you picked I that bought up. it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So then I uh, I did most of the work on myself, mostly outside the shop in the co- uh, compound, including painting the car myself. Yeah. Yeah. I did the body work, painted it. But um, but you did a lot of cool stuff with that body. So take me through that because I'll see if we can get a you know maybe a, a picture of this thing. But rear bumper. Well, I yeah I stripped off. They still had the uh, big uh, bumpers, uh, the safety crash bumpers. So I because, stripped them off, which dropped a lot of weight. Yeah. Now over in Europe, they didn't have those big of things. They had smaller bumperettes. Yep. Just like the earlier cars had here. So did you get a set brought over? No, no. I just stripped them off. So shaved, shaved them off. Shaved them off, and then filled in the holes. And yeah, yeah. And I still have the bumpers. Those bumpers. <laughs> They're underneath that sh- uh, that uh, shed there. So the front end though also has a really cool chin spoiler. Yeah, I I, or- I ordered a, a fiberglass chin front chin spoiler from England, and then a rear back spoiler. Mm-hmm. I did that. And I, I did the body work to mold them both in, and uh, uh, yeah. And it's kind and of. And it actually does work. You can notice it when you're on the highway. The you could the front end would start lifting a little bit. You could feel it where this is way more hunkered down. You can literally feel 
feel the difference in it. You finished it in kind of a steely powder blue kind of medium Yeah, well, blue. That's, that's what I had painted the uh, Fiat, that color. Okay, yeah. And it's actually a Fiat color. And the wheels on it, though, are Yeah, I ordered well, a set right? of uh, Compomotive wheels from England. Now, they're still 13-inch, but they're 7-inch width. Um, and then I got uh, 60 series tires to fit on that. Um, and uh, even to this day, those that era performance, like the Escorts and the Capris and the Cortina GTs and all those, they over in, in England, they still run 13 inches. Which is unbelievable to think, you know, know, in the world we live in today. Well, in North America, yeah. no, I understand that. You know? But there's reasons for that. So in autocross and stuff, the smaller wheels have an advantage and smaller wheels you know it's not always an advantage to have bigger wheels no. it's just a lot of that's just trend and style and in in my opinion only they reach the point of be overdoing it so the bigger the wheel the more unsprung weight weight you have which mm-hmm. makes your ride harsher and you reach the point i seen a an article not that long ago where they took a volkswagen jetta and they put on different wheel combinations to see which was more ideal so they went from like a a uh, they went to from a 16 inch a 17 inch and stuff and they reached the point where you by the time you hit 18 inch your car was actually running slower because they had more unsprung weight yep. to spool up and all that stuff right so there's right. trade-offs yeah but of course a lot of the people they just pay attention to the um to the looks of it but but anyways um so the yeah i got ordered those up um and then i did all the so you could, I got bigger, thicker anti-sway bars and special um, uh, gas pressure shocks, and the bushings in the in the, the suspension were all uh, replaced by this urethane. Is polyurethane, it? Yeah, yeah, polyurethane, yeah. and that kind of thing. I did. So there were kits available. Uh, I ordered and I did all that. Now, uh, how about suspension. engine transmission? Any work there? Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, the transmission was stock. I didn't monkey with that, but the engine, yeah, for sure. <laughs> so the engine, I had um, I had uh, taken apart myself, and uh, I had taken the crank and rods and got them balanced, and um, then I polished the rods. And by polishing the rods, you, you have any little nicks and stuff, they can start cracks. So mm, okay. That that uh, helps there, and. Uh, then I got uh, stronger rod bolts for it, uh, so I worked on the. Uh, and then I had the had the uh, the, the block board out uh, with uh, oversized, and I ordered the pistons from England. So the compression ratio here was like eight point two to one or eight point five to one, something like yeah, that. It yeah. was pretty low, but over there it was a full point higher. Oh wow! So I got those stock Ford pistons from over there mm-hmm. and um uh so it gave much higher compression and then but the real big change was then i got uh from a performance outfit in england much much bigger valves mo- way bigger valves and i went i used to do uh, two-stroke engine porting and stuff and i actually poted, ported my friend who used to road race a lotus 23b uh, at racetracks in Gimli and Calgary uh, and uh, Edmonton and out uh, near Vancouver 
I forgot the name of the track, and I helped port his heads out there on oh, cool. the Lotus uh, engines. And anyways, but I uh, I opened up the, the things and, and uh, the ports and everything to accept these, um, especially on the intakes, but they were way bigger. Uh, and that, But it was a common thing they did over there. So over here, no, but uh, so I had much bigger valves put in and that way bigger flow. And then I got a Offenhauser intake and then a small 390 CFM Holly four barrel. So stock would have been there uh, a small two barrel uh, Weber. Mm-hmm. But the, so this, so now you've got and way more power. Cam didn't change? Oh, the cam, oh yeah, I put a cam in uh, a uh, an American cam which I'm trying to think of the name of it now. Okay, I yeah. But I overdid it there. I, I didn't go, because uh, you could get like four different profiles. You can go one up above stock and then a more racier can and then a and then one above that and then a full race one. I didn't. I knew I didn't want the full race one. I went one down. But really, it's got a real cool lope to it, but it doesn't really kick in till after 3,000 RPM. Well when you're driving normally, you know, so yeah, I should have got one below that actually. <laughs> so it's one one change I might make down the road. What else. what uh like red line for this kind of V six, where does that sit at? Oh well that is uh with the cam and everything, it'll uh and I got a, a dual point ignition. Of okay. course that's sort of you know, much more modern electronic ignition, but that was the hot uh, setup there. Whole do uh, a different uh, Melroy, I think, dual point distributor. Um, so with all that done, yeah, it was a big boost in power. Um, and and you can take the tack up to what? Oh, it it'll wind out way past sixty five actually. Yeah. And that's some of the things why I should have backed down the cam a bit. But um, so yeah, in the upper end goes like heck and it pulls, but then. Uh, below uh, 3,000. I mean, it pulls okay, but it's not flat. But, uh, you know, I should have went more uh, for more usable drivability, <laughs> let's just say. Well, some of my favorite memories are when I was a kid, you'd come to, up to Saskatoon with this car. And I remember Easter time because it was always the Dragon's Rod and Custom Car Show. Yeah. And it was at Sastel Center. Now, you know, Sask, Sask Place back in the time. And uh, I remember going, Paul, jumping in the back seat of that car, and you and my dad in the front. And we'd go to that show, and I'd be all starstruck with all the cars that'd be there, you know. And I, I liked all kinds of goofy old stuff too. But we'd hop back in there and t- t- turn left to come out of, of Sass Place, and you'd wind it out in the highway, and we'd go flying back in. And of course, <clears throat> sorry, but my dad never drove like that. So. <laughs> <laughs> it was it's one of those things that stands out in my memory the most with with that cool car so so that car you know has has been around a long time you've had it since like the late 80s then yeah and you had a, you have a parts car for it still yes and you know i think there's from what i've seen there's one other one around really i mean there might be maybe some down here in the southern part of the province but in saskatoon there's like a burgundy dark brown yeah. one driving well, actually, around actually yeah i know that one that's my friend who rode race the lotus and that's his son's car oh really so yes uh, so when i go up i always go over to visit and on boxing day and he shows up and 
Yeah, we, we taught cars. So I brought him over some Capri books and everything. So he's got the one uh, uh, the year or two earlier, but with the two liter, what they call the Pinto overhead cam. Engine, okay. Which became very popular for performance modifications, actually, over the years. Matter of fact, that was even way back when uh, people would put those motors uh, in the back of Volkswagen Beetles. <laughs> really? And and, uh, and and sand ra- rails, you know. Yeah, yeah, that was a popular one for that. There's all kinds of, there's books out, performance modifications for it. So you actually can do a lot to those motors. But that was also the basis. They use that. That's later on. We talked about the SVO yep. Mustang and that. That was the, the basis for all that. The, they turbocharged them and 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 now the car that's in the garage that you drive around right now is a, a pretty cool 90 what three 94 94 volkswagen carado vr6 yes yeah and it's easy to see if we look at your history <laughs> what led you to that cool you know european car too because that's like for anybody who hasn't heard of VR, I mean, sure, lots of car people listening have heard of a VR6 because they stuffed that into the Corrado, and you could get a Golf with it at yeah. one point, right? And a, and a couple of their Volkswagens back in the early '90s. But it's like a it's a it's a V6, but it stands up quite close together, right? It's a narrow yeah. angle. Narrow angle, yeah. So they have just one head covering, so the cylinders, so the cylinders are staggered. So it's almost the idea is almost as narrow of an engine as a four cylinder is. But a V6. But not as long right. as an inline, inline six. inline six, yeah, right. it's very long. So, uh, and they have a very unique, very exotic sound to yes. them. So that's part of the appeal of those engines. They're really rev easy. Uh, stock in that day, they produced quite a bit of power. Um, people do modify them even more. I mean, up to ridiculous levels, yeah. which you can find on almost anything now. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, they're very sweet motor. They the standard Corrado, they had a uh, supercharged four cylinder in there. Uh, but uh, the uh, VR6 are more sought after, a sweeter sounding motor. Well, and I've driven it, and like yeah. you know, all the way up to the top of the tack yeah. is just uh, well, a like you said, a really unique sound. But it's so smooth, yeah. you can hear it. You can't even feel a vibration of that. You know, six thousand RPM. You can't even feel it through the seat or for the through the gas pedal or the steering wheel. Nothing. It's yeah. it just sings right to the very top. It's and but it still sounds very German though. You know, yeah. like it's doesn't sound like a Ferrari or anything like that. It has a very German sound. But that car is really cool too because we're talking about a like a two door. Call it you know fastback coupe. I guess yeah. you know mm-hmm. hatch liftback liftback. But everybody's n- knows about that that spoiler. That was one of the the coolest things, right? I mean, it, it has a power lifting spoiler. That's right. Stock they they had that. Now some of the modern uh, supercars have that. Sure. Right? Yeah. But uh, that's uh, the first one that I'm aware of. Anyways, maybe somebody can correct this, but that was the first one. To come standard with that, so at at, at a certain speed, I think it's like uh, over uh, once you get over eighty kilometers an hour, the spoiler pops up and lifts by itself. Yeah, and uh, um, in in Europe it doesn't pop up till a higher speed, but in North America they brought because we don't travel at autobahn speed. <laughs> so so then and then when you come near a stop, then it comes back down. Yeah. By itself some other neat things is like that was that would have been an, a very early car uh like it was it was 
a luxury, you know, a, a performance sports car with a luxury, a bit of a luxury flair. And what I mean by that is, and we had it had heated Recaro seats, right? Yep. And even had uh, the little pressurized headlight washers, right? I mean, yeah, so yeah, it had. Know, a, it was a very expensive car, uh, too. It, it was designed actually to compete against the in Europe the Porsche, um, the Porsche nine forty fours. Okay, yeah. So it was designed to compete against that kind of thing, and um, yeah, there's a lot of unique things about it. But um, it is a front wheel drive. But you can't notice the torque steer. You can't on most front-wheel drive. It mm-hmm. has a very unique um, differential in it that somehow they got that so you, you can't notice it even when you're really giving her. You yeah. don't have that. Uh, so there's a lot of, uh, yeah, it, it was a performance uh, coupe for sure. And the gearing, uh, like it's a five-speed standard. And uh, it's designed, unlike a lot of other five-speeds, which five, fifth was overdrive, this is not. So it does rev in fifth fairly high if you're not used to it. But it's designed to pull um, um, uh, redline in, and at its top speed. Right. So most of the overdrives, they won't pull redline at, at their top speed. No. They sort of don't have enough juice. So this will. So even... In fifth gear, when you go to pass, you punch it, and you don't have to downshift. It goes. It really yeah. goes. Yeah. So it's got it's got it was remarkably a lot of uh, a power for that size of a motor, which is a two point eight liter uh, v, uh, VR six. Yes. So you've had a couple of other vehicles, an F one fifty, a Ford Ranger, some North American stuff here and there, a few other things. But why do you think, as a whole? You know, we've, we've talked about the whole history of all the stuff you've had. What is it the most that, that, that draws you towards the European stuff? You know, especially growing up in the late 60s, early 70s and stuff like that, when you had lots of friends who were, I mean, probably some who liked what you drove too. But certainly the idea back then was GTOs and, you know, Corvettes and Mustangs and all that stuff. What was it that, that draw, drew you to all this? Yeah, well, we talked a little bit about that before, but uh, we oh, we also missed one car. Now it was oh. the CRX SI I had for many years, which you drove. Well, yes, yes, yeah. the the that was the one that that was you know out of, out different in a way. Uh, wasn't a European thing, but no, uh, but it was uh, very light. They only weighed a uh, little over eighteen hundred pounds. 19... And that was a nineteen eighty. Uh, uh, seven, seven, right? Yes. Honda CRX yeah, SI. CR- SI, yeah. So fuel injection, and they were that was the performance one. They had a standard CRX, but that was the SI, and they're like little go karts, and you're traveling. They're actually pretty practical car. They got really good fuel economy, and remarkably enough, even though they're light and everything, you wouldn't think so. They actually stick to icy roads really well. It's sort of the wedge shape. The wind, the 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 uh, wind, the aerodynamics tends to suck it down to yep. the road. So yep. actually, they were pretty good that way. Uh, so the Corrado was actually I never thought about it, but I had people oh well that looks like your CRX, and I looked and looked and I, I wasn't thinking about it that way, but it sort of was a little bit, I a little guess. bit, a little bit of a stretched out. It's a little bit yeah. longer certainly. Yeah, well, and it has the CRX did not have back seats. It was a two seater. Two seater, yeah. And then it had that. But anyway, so. Uh, cause that one I had for many, many years. Yeah. And, uh, so then we get to the 
questions you're asking me about uh, what influenced that. And you suggested maybe it was because I lived in Germany for a while and I seen those cars and it could have been that. Um, I uh, read a lot of the more the magazines like instead of writing Hot Rod, which mm -hmm. I did read a little bit of those, which, you know, caters to the American performance crowd there. The uh, car uh, magazines like Car and Driver, Road and Track, that type That's what, type you, of thing. what you grew up reading. Yeah, I grew up reading that. And uh, yeah, I, I uh, so I always, uh, so the. You know, I, I even have a theory too, though, what? is that not just your time in Germany, but simply the fact that your first car was something European, right? Well, that probably and, was a contributing factor. And your dad, my grandpa, continued to buy some European stuff throughout the years, even after they got back to Canada. There was Volkswagens and other things that showed up randomly, little, little you know, European cars, right? So it, it, it must have had a pretty big influence that way as well, you know? Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, I just uh, was, to me, I look on it as a natural. I always like the smaller cars. And yeah. I know that even in trucks, too, uh, that I prefer the older style Ranger size truck. Yeah. And I do have an F-150, but I don't like driving it. It's a big <laughs> tank by comparison. Now, I'm realizing the odd gut duck here because uh, obviously the majority of people like driving these big vehicles. I'm scratching my head figuring, trying to figure out why they like to drive these big things. And we were talking about in the 70s how... The big American cars, you got Grand Marquis, all those big American cars, they were big, big boats. And we used to kind of call them Yank Tanks. You know, we kind of <laughs> poke fun. So whenever you're in a group or not a group, but something you're into, you know, maybe you poke fun at the other side. Well, sure, yeah. But that's what the, that's what you're... Your mom and dad drove and the big American stuff and, uh, and then their, their parents and everything. So maybe some of that's a little bit of uh, uh, revolt against that type of thing <laughs> okay, going yeah. the opposite. That, that could have been some of it. I don't know uh, because uh, as we were talking a little bit earlier that uh, when you were really young, really young, we're talking four or five years old, he was always a car guy. And what did he want? Uh, he wanted a 1932 Mercedes Benz. Yeah. <laughs> so go figure that. He didn't want. He didn't want a 67 Mustang or slammed Civic. He wanted this old, old stuff from yeah. the 30s, 40s, and whatnot. And he worked his way to the 50s in his natural taste. <laughs> I could see that. I was scratching my head and going, "What the hell." But uh, yeah, so it was always about the style for me, though. That I mean, that's not that's part of it. I mean, the stuff that you're into is is very good looking and 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 quite quite cool. But it's about handling and performance. When I was just a kid, it was just the cool the the, yeah. the artistry of it. That's I think what drew me to that early, you know, big swoopy fenders and and all that kind of stuff out of the 20s and 30s and things like that. But. I mean, I guess that's what it comes down to. Is it just sometimes it's hard to explain your your interest or right. or why you really yeah, like your, something. Your taste you know? is your taste, yeah. and it gets to be you really can't always explain it. So it's one of those things. Yeah, but I'm always naturally so sure. I uh, we're at a car show and say there's a modern Mustang, say or a Camaro, and I like them. I like them. But if there's a European, if there's a Porsche or something over there, no, now I'm really <laughs> looking at that more so. 
And uh, for a lot of practical reasons, I wish I did have more of a passion for that other stuff because it's much more easier to get service and parts and buy and you know they're generally a little more reliable like i think than some of the european stuff but it wasn't just the european so the smaller japanese stuff too uh again you you know your grandpa's my dad's uh civic yeah for my and first that, car that's yeah. that now to see that that's really small oh that would but be the, a... one, the civics before that were even smaller that's right so uh physically and uh, everything's got. So if you look at a Civic now, man, that's a big car. It's bigger than the Accords used to be. It is. It and is. And it's big. They kept getting bigger and bigger. Well, and bigger. we are certainly on that swing again. And yeah. call it call it the swing that we saw. It'd be similar to the swing we saw in the '70s that you grew up in. And what I'm saying is because you you grew up in the late '60s and into the '70s, and you saw cars just keep getting bigger, right? Because by the mid '70s, we were talking about yeah. the biggest cars that we ever had, right? Yeah. Well, you you take a Thunderbird, for right. example. Right. Started out as a sports car in 1955, yeah. about the size of the well, the original Corvette. Too. Right. Yeah. And then the Thunderbird by the late '70s was a gargantuan car. Yeah. Absolutely. But here we are seeing the same thing, right? We're seeing the demise now in 2021. There's very few subcompact cars for sale cheap little cars there's almost none in fact Ford to stop making cars chevy is just about done making cars like there's almost no little cars we're into big suvs trucks are the number one selling thing so we're on that big swing upwards again right right i'll bet you we'll still see another return to some small stuff yeah there's already getting to be a little bit uncertain so the millennials there's a bit of a little little start of a I call it a backlash. They, you know, well, and they, they, so they see all the stuff. Yeah. And yeah, we were talking earlier that, uh, so if you got a big American car in the seventies and say it was 4,500 pounds, oh my God, that's a lead sled. That's a thing. Well, these SUVs weigh more, way more than that now. Oh, absolutely. Most and, of them. Uh, yeah. Most and of them even, and even a small SUV weighs quite a bit. And, uh, uh, what they call a midsize truck. Well, <laughs> 5,000 pounds is mid-size, you know, so yeah, you're right. I guess it... I look on that from the aspect, also being in the motorcycle business. Yeah. So sport bikes, uh, they could take a sport bike that was really light, aluminum frame and everything, everything, and they could take it and unbelievable knock off 40 pounds off something that weighed 450 pounds. Right. And they could knock, and just it was it was all incremental stuff. So a little bit lighter bolt, a little bit lighter bracket, little all the stuff adds up. And so when I look at cars, I go, well, there's just a ton of potential to drop some of the weight. But I guess they're not as interested in doing that. So lighter weight makes everything more efficient, get better fuel economy, and everything. I think they struggle with that. I have a feeling that the auto manufacturers struggle with that slightly because of ever changing. Safety requirements. Yeah, the safety thing plays a big role. Because and, because yeah. even the latest, newest test that came out only three or four years ago, the the small impact front crash test, where used to, okay, it's an old crash test. You'd smash up a car, the whole front end would be crushed, right? Then they moved to half the width of the front end of the vehicle. Well, now they do one that's a quarter of the width. So the entire force of the impact is forced on just a quarter, the very outside edge of the vehicle. And what they found is that that's a majority of how crashes happen. People try to miss or try to avoid one another, but they still end up crashing. But most of the vehicles that were in those tests were failing. So they actually had to add more 
metal to the front of the vehicle to be able to survive those tests. But you know what? I think personally, I'd rather have a car that I don't, you know, if I get a crash and my, my legs stay on versus one that just gets better fuel economy. Like, yeah, I think I think the safety is important, know you know. Saying, yeah. So yeah. well, anyways, obviously, the SUVs are selling like crazy. Yeah. Not that not that many car regular cars are selling anymore, and uh, from my vantage point, my viewpoint, and everything, uh, most of them are pretty ugly. <laughs> and I go, wow, where's everybody's taste these days? But. Yeah, no, the practicality and all that comes into play. You got a family moving around, so that doesn't. So for an SUV, they may think that's a pretty good looking SUV. For me, I'm looking compared to cars. Oh, you know, there's very <laughs> few that I say when I'm reading some articles. Yeah, I'll, I'll read them on the SUVs, and they'll go, "Well, whoa, this is a good looking SUV," and I'm going, "What? What are they talking about?" <laughs> That thing looks hideous, as I'm thinking. But that's me. Obviously, I'm different than most of them. Again, like, I'd rather drive a smaller, much smaller truck. So, like, we talked about, so Ford, for example, is coming out with a, what they call the Maverick, which yep. is a, a compact truck again to offer. And uh, they everybody sort of ba- abandoned that segment all at once. And I was scratching my head going, well, there's still a lot of people that would prefer it, especially in bigger urban centers, you know. Yeah. So the old original, uh, which I have, of course, uh, 86 uh, Ranger. And, of course, GM had something to compete. Mazda and, and Nissan and Toyota. Had yep, them. they all did. But, yep. they, but then they all went up in size. The old. So-called. The- uh, so uh, Tacoma you know, went up in size, and um, they call it a, a midsize. And it's not that much smaller than my 2002 Ford F-150, actually. Yeah. In physical size, just a little bit, but that's the way things went. So people obviously in the masses wanted these bigger things and to yeah. do that, and uh, they're selling like crazy. So, hey, what that's what works. So that's what generates uh, the profits. I still think it's it's good though to to have a variety of people. So I I think it's great that uh, that you've got that taste because yeah you know it's it's influenced me too i, I like small cars I, I like it all though i've got a big gigantic 19 yeah. foot yacht from 1969 and i've got a 2012 honda fit sport yeah one and of the smallest cars you can buy in the market right now and, yeah, I, and i and i love them both so i remember when he had that civic and then he was telling me he was going to get buy an old civic out of california with no rust you know one of the uh the earlier ones well, yeah. it was around well, 1980 same, or something yeah it was an 81 as well and uh and i was kind of huh <laughs> and i and then the next thing you know he buys this giant buick yeah so what but i uh, didn't i wasn't aware as much uh, for some reason as the the family background to do with the buicks yeah and it wasn't until you had that uh, display they go oh okay i yeah. get it now yeah so yeah your dad had a well, buick and your grandpa had a buick yeah your dad had a bunch of buicks yeah, too yeah, right? That's right so you then know, so. i got it a little bit more and yeah it's sort of fun but anyways i was just amazed how things have gone and you're out you're right still i i i don't think i think they got they could apply a lot more technology even to suvs and trucks yeah. to make them a lot lighter i'm they sure get they better could. fuel economy the physics so if you're trying to stop a, a heavy vehicle versus a light vehicle the light vehicle is going to stop a lot faster given yeah know, good brakes and stuff so uh, and they can go, I look at that stuff and they could go a long ways, but obviously they haven't had the motivation to do it. So they don't bother. <laughs> so you take something like Lotus was, was renowned for cutting weight out of it, 
out of things. And yeah. so a lotus land uh, from the 60s, a lotus land weighed something like 1,500 pounds. <laughs> Nothing. 1,500 pounds. Yeah, yeah. Now, a story to do with that was when, when my friend, um, Alan, was road racing the Lotus 23B race car. We were at the Edmonton Raceway. And he became uh, B and C Sports uh, race champion for quite a few years there. Cool. And you know, for, back in that era, and um, so, but at, at these races, there'd be b- different categories of of cars, and they so they could be out at the same time, but they weren't really racing the same race. So mm-hmm. one time, there was a full race, '67 uh, Corvette 427, full race, set up was lighting and everything. So they were both on the track. So the Lotus 23B had a, uh, well, it was punched out to a big bore, 1650, with Cosworth, <laughs> Pistons, yep. and everything. Cool. Uh, but the Lotus 23B weighed something like 1,150 pounds. Nothing. And so they're, they're going around the Edmonton track. And part of the Edmonton track, they, they long straightaway, they used as a drag race course other weekends but when the road race there so the top then cut around but anyways they had this thing called bridge turn another bridge turn was a quite a sharp turn and they come out on a long straightaway so they really weren't racing against each other but they were in there and i knew my my friend was going to have some fun here i could see him he was way out front in his class so now he's slowly catching up to this corvette and they're coming out of the bridge turn once, and uh, I could see them going down the straight, and they're kind of neck and neck. Mm-hmm. And I waited. Then the next time go around, I knew what was going to ha- happen. I knew my friend well enough. So they come out of the bridge turn, and the Corvette punches it, and Alan punches it. And geez, if he doesn't pull the Corvette in at the end of the long really? straight. And now you can hear the Corvette guy. He's windy. He's ticked off and he's probably wow that's little dinky force on or bad i mean even though they weren't racing in the same yeah. thing and uh so he was winding that motor up more and more and more and on the one but the thing is the corvette weighs more so then when he's having a, his brakes are overheating because he's getting on the brakes harder to try to close up the gap again and so just a series, and he's winding his motor up more, using the brakes more. So his brakes are overheating, they're fading, and he's winding the motor up. So down a long backstretch, hear this thing winding up, and then kaboom. And the thing blew up so hard that some of the, some of the engine parts went right through the hood. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. That was, yeah, he just and you know totally what? destructed it. It's that. all about perspective because... From a from a North American standpoint, the yeah. Corvette was light. Yes, right. Oh, you're right. You know, right. fiberglass body, fiberglass and body, and yeah, and, and it, it you you know used to be originally when it started in the 50s. Again, like the Thunderbird was designed sort of to compete against it. Yep. But more luxuries. It was a genuine sports car, and uh, it was fairly small. Then they over time they made it bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. But still, even at the end, it was. Not exceedingly heavy because yeah. it, he has a fiberglass body. Yeah, but it's it's funny because it's all perspective, right? Yes. You could stand there, everybody with a, a big block, right. 
you know, uh, uh, like you say, the, the Cuda or whatever. Yeah. You stand there, oh, that light little Corvette, you know. And then yeah. the way you're talking about it, though, and here's yeah. this well, you Lotus look, going by and, and you know, yeah. blowing the Corvette no, so up. The, the, that, that's the clear example of, of lightweight. Power, yeah. It's power to weight. But most people don't think about that, yeah. power to weight. They think just more power. They're not looking at the weight. And I see that in ATVs, modern uh, off-road ATVs. You yep. know? So some of these makes got bigger and bigger motors and everything, and they weigh just an unbelievable amount. So uh, uh, an ATV that weighs 200 pounds lighter, well, that's like a, a big rider sitting on back. Yeah. But they have a smaller motor. Well, guess what? Off-road. Uh, lightweight rules and the, so this way smaller engine thing can can you know overtake this big honking thing yep well anyways so yeah that's well thanks this has been enlightening thanks yeah. for thanks for sharing that's no that's good i think it's it's lots of lots of fun and lots of good stories and uh for pictures go to jthomasauto.ca and always you're gonna find more uh stories just like this you know whether it's whether it's european or it's north american but we're here to share good car stories so thanks for joining us uh i'm jay thomas thanks for listening to bald tires